calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Jessica. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Jessica. Murder, vampirism, cannibalism, drug addiction, alcoholism, sadism, mutilation. How did it end? If it had ended, we would not be here. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. You'd like to hear us discuss the best Cassavetti's death of all time, then you will join the sleaze. (laughs) Thank you. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for almost three years now, which is insane. There's something like 60 or 70-plus bonus episodes waiting for you, as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about uh, new release genre films. So if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast. I'd recommend doing that. And speaking of which, we did have a lot of people make the jump this week. So I had to give them their shout-outs here. uh, So shout-out to Brandon Lilly. Evan uh, Spadani, Drew Mascarelli, fuck, uh, <laughs> Val Terry, uh, Serico. Yep, this is the Josh mispronounces your name section of the show. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the show. Chris. Oh, that's nailed it, buddy. Just Chris. <laughs> Thanks, um, Chris. Shen Plus, uh, Turner Barrowman, Dylan uh, Seely, John Callahan, M. Reddy, Raphael Ambrosius Costo incredible nice. that's a great um, name uh x-files and pizza fridays <laughs> <laughs> and nice. emmett booth uh those are all the new sign this week thanks so much guys for signing up hope you guys are enjoying all those bonus episodes yeah thank you um that's the one plug for the week the other plug is always uh apple podcast if you guys are listening on apple podcast and i see the stats i know that you are i see you right now listening on apple podcast scroll down to the bottom of this episode while you're listening to it and give us a good old rating and review down there helps us uh climb the ranks and helps us find new listeners that way yes please uh, and then the last plug for the week, as always, uh, now, as always, anyway, it's merch. We've got merch. Uh, if you guys like the art that uh, Trevor Henderson, the Toronto horror artist, did for our podcast. Yeah, and it's The awesome. logo that you see on, on every podcast listener of choice. Um, you can put it on anything. Shirts, hoodies, mugs, uh, whatever, whatever you'd like. Uh, just general <laughs> posters. That's right. Um, We're going to get underwear soon. It's going to be wild. Yeah, the the, the <laughs> link for that is in the description and also at sleezoidspodcast.com if you're interested in merch. But there we go. That's it. The intros are getting long, but that's it. We're done. Welcome back. <laughs> as always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us and we would have had special guest uh, Seamus on who was talking uh, with us for the first time we went silent era mode we talked about robert weiss we did uh the cabinet of dr caligari uh 100 years old 
yeah. um, from 1920. And then we also talked about his film Hands of Orlock from 1924 about the murderous serial killer hands that get surgically put on to the piano player. Yes. Um, so either way, we, we had a lot of fun breaking down German expressionist horror with Seamus. And it actually led us into uh, your guys' bonus episode on Patreon for last week where we continued and we talked about my personal favorite uh silent era horror film we talked about Haxon. yeah uh, amazing just an incredible witchcraft film. through the ages from uh 1922 and uh we actually paired that with uh the city of the dead from 1960 which was another film about uh satanism and witchcraft yeah. um and kind of has a had cool a- psycho uh, vibe to it by the, by the yeah, a little bit point. of psycho, a little bit of hammer horror in there, yeah. uh, which, which separates it a little bit from the, uh, the, the silent era horror images of Haxon, even though even for the silent era, that movie oh. is pretty nuts. There is some on screen baby sacrificing and devil worship and all kinds of craziness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so again, if you want that episode, that was last week's bonus episode, patreon.com slash Lizoid's podcast. Uh, but this week, we have a very special guest joining us this week. He is the uh, director of programming at Shudder, which is a uh, streaming service I'm sure the vast majority of our listenership is aware of. We've actually mentioned it a number of times on the show as ways to check out some of the films that we've talked about. Me personally, yeah. I've discovered so many films by just opening up Shudder and being like, what's a 85-minute <laughs> movie I've never heard of that has a crazy poster? It reminds me of going to the video store back in the day and just looking at the poster and being like, that's yeah. what I'm watching tonight and some of the films we've covered on the show uh that was how i discovered sorority babes at the slime ball <laughs> bolorama <laughs> which we yeah. eventually covered on the show uh how banger. i watched castle freak and dead and buried and all kinds of some of the smaller films that we've uh talked about next of kin uh, that oh, yeah. we paired uh with the shining uh, but needless to say, Shudder, it's a very great service, and we're very excited to have the director of programming of Shudder join us today for this episode, uh, Sam Zimmerman. Sam, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. What a what a delight to be invited, and what a delight to talk about uh, double features. I think it's kind of a... You don't get to talk about them that much, let alone do them that uh, much. Uh, I, I watch a lot for work, but rarely in, in any sort of thematic or smartly programmed way because uh recreational viewing flies out the window sometimes <laughs> yeah Ab- absolutely no when we initially came up with the idea for the show i you know I, I i do a little bit of work in film exhibition and we do some some rep programming and stuff so part of my idea was you know every week we get people get to program their dream rep double feature uh right so uh speaking of which obviously uh we have the guests bring on the double feature with them so sam what two films have you brought with you this week and why do they pair together so I brought um, John D. Hancock's 1971 gem, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And I brought John Huff's 1973 Haunted House, uh, in my opinion, all-timer, The Legend <laughs> of Hell House. Amazing. And uh, I brought them, you know, I, I'm interested to hear and, and go back and understand how guests choose theirs. Um, <clears throat> I wish I could say that I was I was thinking programmatically about them and how they pair together, but I, I was actually thinking kind of selfishly when when you guys invited me and I started thinking about a great double feature and especially movies of this era. I realized that if someone were to ask me my favorite horror films of the seventies, of course it's a longer list, but kind of instinctually my first two thoughts are "Let's Scare Jessica to Death" and "The Legend of Hell House." These are two movies I 
I really adore and I watch a lot and I think about a lot and I, I haven't watched them together. And so I sort of mm. was curious to go down a road of what does that double feature mean and what can <laughs> it tell me about my tastes <laughs> Uh, and why I love them both so much. And, you know, of course, I I mean, I think maybe this can happen when you're watching two things in conversation with each other at any point, but of course I saw uh, similarities and differences and and parallels and, of course, opposites and things that Mm -hmm. I really like about movies. And I'm not surprised I love these two movies so much, even though they feel different. Definitely, definitely. Well, and, and, and both are good examples of kind of like maybe not films that people would immediately jump to mind when they think of 70s horror filmmaking, but are ones that do feel emblematic of them in, in a lot of different ways. And, yeah, um, yeah. I was I was especially Absolutely. taken to rewatching Let's Scare Jessica to Death at how it predates so much of what are, you know, sort of like the classic 70s horror and how much it reminded me of so many of those movies um, while mm-hmm. also coming out before many of them. So we're excited to jump into this. And I think we're going to start out here because we, we, we like to do most of these chronologically so we're going to start out here with uh let's scare jessica to death Right, we are talking Let's Scare Jessica to Death, the 1971 American horror film co- co-written and directed by uh, John Hancock in what was his directorial debut, and also oh. starring uh, Zora Lampert. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of actors in here, but this is really her movie. She is Jessica in what it has to be one of the all-timer horror movie titles, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Let's scare Jessica to death. That 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 frame that uh, title shot of them driving the red font. Let's scare Jessica to death, and then it comes up with the you know the the MMXC underneath, and it just says the Jessica Company. Horrifying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but very broadly, um, Let's Scare Jessica to Death was, I believe, originally envisioned by um, the writers as kind of like this um, a movie about a, a, a bunch of hippie kids who are kind of terrorized uh, by a lake, by a monster. That was kind of like the, the general idea that they kind of came up with. And then when Hancock was brought on board, he kind of like rewrote it and, and very uh, drastically re-envisioned it as, you know, more of, um, you know, a, a psychological assault akin with, with that kind of subjective uh, ambiguity to it, like something yeah. like uh, that we found in, you know, something like Henry James's Turn of the Screw or Shirley Jackson's The Haunting were things that he cited as inspiration. And uh, it was it was good to know going into it because someone had described it to me as that really bizarre feeling you get when you finish The Innocence. 
That is <laughs> yeah. kind of what this film feels like uh, in, in a lot of different ways. And I was glad that someone explained that uh, to me or, or at least pitched it to me in that way. Because when I get to the end of The Innocence and I, I sit there and I go, was that a story about a haunted estate like swallowing children? Or was that about a sexually repressed weirdo who loves kids a little bit too much, <laughs> yeah. violently projecting her overprotective fantasies onto them? And this movie has a lot of similar you know, sort of questions where you're like, is this happening? Is Jessica projecting yeah. this? Is is it is it a combination of the two where elements of real life are taking a toll on her psychological state and her imaginations yeah. and feelings are just kind of doing the rest for you? It also seems to express like how uh, important it is uh, for Jessica to be believed in the sense, like w- of, in what she's seeing. Like we have that scene where they first yes. get to the house and she and, and we already kind of has have established that you know she she's been through some some mental anguish she's 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 seen things here and there. She's that previously there. been 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 institutionalized actually, right. and just recently been been let out um, right. with her husband and and her friend who are going to go and they're going to live you know at a at a, a small farm property that they basically just purchased. Right, and when they get there, they like almost right away. She sees a figure uh, move uh, through the through the hallway in the uh, in the upstairs, and instantly she she has this this moment of like like I saw somebody, but are they going to believe me? And then when the husband or boyfriend or or whoever um, sees the person as well and acknowledges that he also saw that person, she has almost like an excited feeling about it, even though it's, it's still kind of a scary situation for a stranger to be in your house. Mm -hmm. But it's just that, that validation of like, like you saw it too. You believe me, you know? And and it's, it's always walking that line of what is she seeing and what is really happening. And to have that clarification in that moment where she's just like, yes, so I really did see something, I think, is the line that she gets. And she says right. it so excitedly, like, I'm not fucking crazy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a really yeah. good way to establish just her character and kind of the their relationship and dealing with her past. Um, and then it just continues with that, uh, but just full throttle. So, mm-hmm. And yeah, I really love that you mentioned how excited she gets, because even when Jessica goes upstairs and they're seeking out who, who else is in the house, she has a smile on her face. Like, it's... Yeah. Like it's an event, like it's at a party, and not, uh, oh no, there's there's an intruder in this house we've we've mentally claimed as ours, uh, recently bought. Um, but that also could be an expression of the time and the sort of mm-hmm. psychological approach they have to things. You know, when they arrive in town and the townspeople are, you know, like get out of here, hippies. You know, I'm sure there's right. there's something to that mentality and at least that fluidity of, oh, someone's in the house. They might not be immediately threatening whereas i think most people today would enter a home they were renting or buying and see someone <laughs> they didn't expect to see and immediately get on the edge yeah yeah, yeah. The it, it, it's it's they, he hancock definitely kept the idea that these are meant to be sort of you know more open sort of hippie style uh characters who are you know it it, it feels like kind of like the end of the 60s era brought into the more kind of like paranoid 70s era a little bit going on yeah. there yeah. there's a really great image very early on when they're just driving um essentially to the place cuz it it kind of opens us like you know with there's a bit where it opens kind of like at the end of the film with the boat sunset and Jessica sort of establishing, you know, really beautiful. I can't believe just what happened. Mm-hmm. Yet I have to believe it. And then she's talking about dreams and nightmares and madness and sanity. And it's a, it's a, it's a good mood setter. Yeah. 
But when they're driving across, um, you know, sort of like just the countryside, like heading their way to this farm and they stop at a cemetery that looks like the cemetery from like Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's like tracing an outline on the tombstone that she eventually puts up in the house and everything like that. But there's this great shot where it shows the car that they're driving, which ba- it, it, it's, it's a hearse. It's essentially it's a, a yeah, hearse. Yeah, straight up hearse. <laughs> um, but it has like the free love, peace and love, like stickers on it and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. It's just such a, like a, like a, a, a very... Um, kind of almost like shocking image to it a little bit. And it definitely, mm-hmm. you know, gets to this little bit about sort of like the, the, the death of, you know, that kind of movement. The fact that those stickers are all over, you right. know, like a, like a vehicle that we associate with. Death and now and, we're like and the driving towards, in. yeah. And driving towards a more paranoid state kind of thing. Yes. And one of the, one of the things I love about that introduction and kind of this idea that the movie really does ride the line of, is everything in Jessica's head versus is something supernatural going on? It rides it in a way that a lot of movies fail to. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think, I think we see a lot of movies that want to play both sides, but ultimately at the end they come down on the side of this was in someone's head. And you kind of know that that's where it's going. You know that that's where it's going to land. Yeah. I really think you can walk away from let's scare Jessica to death with both interpretations. Uh, and I appreciate that about it because I, I have my own reaction to it every time I see it with mm-hmm. kind of what eventually I feel Jessica has gone through, but also like what I want the movie to be. And I think that's a really interesting way to come out of a film. And at the same time, with the hearse, the cemetery, they're almost immediately on a ferry. The, the atmosphere of death and that the idea yeah. of everyone being dead is, is almost hammered right into you at the beginning of this film. Yeah. There's a sense of like predetermination to it a little bit. Um, when you're, when you're in those, those early sequences and just the fact that, you know, uh, credit to Hancock, like the, the mood is just so overbearing, you know, like, like the, the characters themselves actually, you know, frequently seem, um, you know, quite happy, or at least they're trying to pretend to be happy or they're, you know, they want to be in a lot of different ways, but there, there is this really ominous mood to even the stuff that, you know, we don't even know if what's wrong yet. We're like, what's going on? Like, yeah, like um, even open with very slow and deep piano. That's very sad, very melancholic. Uh, but at the same mm-hmm. time you have that really bright and almost like kind of calming, uh, sunset or sunrise in the beginning. Uh, and, and those kind of tones are I, like at least in the beginning, they they kind of cross and then move forward. Mm-hmm. Well, even when she's like looking at the tombstones, and she's very excited because she just likes kind of like the artwork on the tombstones. She's like tracing it out, and yeah. then she sees a woman, and then she hears these intense like bass sounds and shrieking whispers, and then she reads the 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 text on the tombstone, which translates to like "frail as the leaves, like them we flourish, like them decay," <laughs> and like th- this is the kind of like you know this kind of like funeral mood that you kind of just have to what should be you know like a happy moment, like a, a you. Know, a family being reunited and yeah. planning on you know starting a, f- a future together starting a new life and even when they they find out that the figure that was in the house was actually sort of you know like this this young uh, squatter who they assume is you know someone else who's like open maybe another hippie girl as well and you know she plays like a nice ac- acoustic song for them and 
Yes. The the couple and the girl seem to actually like hit it off. They enjoy each other's company. They actually invite her to stay with them because they they just like her so much. But then when she's you know she's playing that acoustic music and it's just overtaken by this this ominous mood and you get some of Jessica's inner thoughts where she's looking at you know like the steak on her plate and she's like it's blood Jessica it's blood yeah. <laughs> uh, you know thing elements like this just they they really interrupt you know the kind of feelings that the characters are trying to have. And it, it just kind of makes the whole thing feel very sad and deflating at times. Characters who don't, you know, they, they don't want to have these feelings, but they can't help it. They just keep happening to them almost. And, and yeah. I think there are odds with what feelings uh, the men are trying to have and Jessica is trying to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there really is a sense, I think, on Jessica's husband's side of I'm going to I'm going to take all my savings and we're going to buy this home and that's where you will get better and we will leave the city and we will yeah. find a new peaceful existence. Not realizing that that in itself kind of isolates her, you know, even there are these moments where she's starting to get sick again, or as he perceives it, she's starting to get sick again. He's like, and she's like, the doctor is all the way back in the city and, you know, not helpful, not at a helpful <laughs> yeah. distance. Um, yeah. And, And that seems to be at odds with, you know, she seems to be at the most peace when she is in the cemetery doing this art or hanging it up and those sort of funeral, it's both beautiful and sad that that funeral atmosphere seems to be what's sort of bringing her peace and all the disruptions are coming, Mm -hmm. you know, when they're at dinner and it's like a classic (laughs) domestic situation. Um, Yeah, it's really, I really love that. Definitely. Well, yeah. And, and it comes up too, like, you know, when, when they're trying to enjoy, you know, like, like the countryside itself, when they're like swimming in the cove and she, the, you know, she's supposed to be in this, this sort of like normal small town sort of like scene that she's having and she can't help, but just feel like something's off about it. Or one of yes. the creepiest ones for me actually is that when she goes into town and there's this really piercing sound design as she's like, she's, she's going to, um, the local farmer who's got chickens, this chicken coop, and she's just trying to buy some eggs. And this is just, should be just like a lovely small town scene of where the new people who have moved in, you know, that she's going to go buy some, some eggs so that they can have a nice breakfast the next morning. But the way that it's filmed by Hancock, it's just the overpowering sounds of the screaming chickens (laughs) and the focus on like the fencing and a simple scene of someone just buying eggs is kind of terrifying. Yeah. And then you get that shot of after she goes out where the car is and all of the, like the, the people, the townspeople, you get these crazy close-ups of them just staring at her and it's nothing more than that. So it's just this constant paranoia uh, feeling that she gets. And then she asks like, and this kind of sets up, you know, the kind of twist that we, that comes by the end where it's like, why were they all wearing bandages? So it, 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 that scene both establishes yeah. more of her paranoia, but then also establishes kind of like something is s- slightly going down in this town that's that's off, something weird, something strange. So um, mm-hmm. it kind of you know, you it know sets her brain up to to focus on something else as well. You know what I love about that that scene when, or at least right before she comes out from getting the eggs. Uh, and all the old men townspeople are, are bullying her husband. It's yeah. so surreal to watch those guys act. Like in any other movie, it would be like rambunctious 16 year olds, like sitting on someone's car, right. but they're all like, 
80 year old like 70 year old like old town <laughs> dudes and and they and they like even push him a little bit in like this very like small way yeah. and it's so it, it's it's eerie because it's kind of surreal and funny like it's even yeah. when he goes into the store and he's like do you know where i could sell some antiques and the guy's like even if i did i wouldn't tell you and he's like yeah I'm like, why everyone in this town <laughs> for sure yeah, it reminds me a little bit of like that sort of like small town paranoia vibe you get a little bit in something like Dead and Buried. Yeah, um, yes. Where where it's sure. like there's 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 a history here that you know we're not really privy to, but all the kind of locals are in their own way, and they you know the one of the shopkeepers gives him gives her like this uh, this this spooky uh, monologue about how you know the, this is the, this is like a flower of evil. Or something like that, and, and, yeah. and she looks at it and she's like, "How can anything this pretty like be evil? It's just old, is all." Like she's even trying to have like a good attitude, even though the tone is screaming at her that something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think that's part but of she, her but trying. She's so to, drawn to it. Yeah, is is kind of what I love, and I think even with the photo and the frame, you know, when they go to the antique store, she doesn't want to sell this photo of the dead family that lived in the house, and I think that is a, an accompaniment to her her cemetery art and to this whole atmosphere of death and that's what she is drawn to and of course there's a, like if the the supernatural aspects of the film are true in the story they're sucking her in they're drawing her in they're seducing her in with that but i do right. think that is a part of this you know she sees this and that everything everything dead is kind of what she is is being called to yeah yeah. Yeah. That, that scene where she tries to sell or that they're looking into like selling the photo and the guy is kind of telling them about, you know, this, this story about how, you know, this, this young girl, uh, she didn't get to have her wedding day and, and she was killed. And they suggest that, you know, she might be like a vampire now who kind of like roams the countryside, like, like getting, getting revenge is kind of like the general idea. And they, they kind of set it up all in the periphery like in another film i feel like this would just be the the actual plot like it would be a paranormal yes. investigation story where you know there's a there's a, a woman who you know uh i mean actually this is actually a connection to hell house it would be like hell house it would be like there is this ancient uh person who passed away but like left a curse on the actual house itself and you right. know they're they're now trying to attack us but because it's jessica's point of view uh and so subjectively and and because of i think zora's performance as well which to give credit to her it's very um it's 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 very sad and also there's something she, she has like this this um charisma to her as well at the same time yeah. that you can tell that you know she's she she's trying to be kind of like this domestic person that is expected of her to be someone who's happy but she clearly has also her her own interests and things like that as well and she's obviously also uh has complex feelings about the things that she's seeing and the things that she's feeling um and you really do kind of feel every stab of you know psychological torment that she eventually does feel as this gets into you know sort of like the the, the the wilder second half of the film yeah yep yeah like well like really like, like when, 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 when she finds that dead body on the ground that is is the shop owner who she was actually kind of uh charmed by uh th th that that sequence is so horrifying because 
earlier when that conversation is actually happening and she you know she's being told about you know this this sort of mythical history of of the house and of the of the picture and things like that and the husband uh duncan actually cuts him short of finishing that story because he thinks that it's actually going to trigger her it's going to make her sick or it's going to make her unhealthy and she is feels sort of like condescended by that she's like no i like this stuff this is this something that makes me feel happy this is something that makes me um feel sane that i'm not as as crazy that other people might believe some of these stories and and things as well and then she gets to that waterfall rocks where he's just bloody all over the ground and there's that girl who like led her there and things like that the actual horror film making is very very effective yeah yeah definitely and it feels a little bit like it's it's not like the the boyfriend or husband is like really like like horrible or anything but some of the time where like that time where you just mentioned where he says like let's stop the story even though jessica isn't really responding negatively to it it did kind of feel like he was doing that more so for himself rather than than jessica yeah and i think it's a mix i don't think like this guy's an entirely selfish person it's just i do think that he is like just you know doesn't want to deal with with what she's going through and so it, even if something again yeah so even if something is uh even if he thinks it might trigger her he doesn't want it to happen and i it's, it feels less for her and a little bit more for him in that scene in particular yeah Absolutely. Which makes yeah, it so terrifying is... when she's alone, right? When she finds that body. Yeah. And, and then, and then, and then, you know, she is telling everyone about this body that she's found and then they can't find it. And, and then right, all it right. does is, all it does is confirm to him that he was right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get these really complicated scenes with, uh, with Emily, who is the squatter, who's, who's starting to kind of like, you know, it, we're starting to reveal what she's been doing uh, behind the scenes a little bit. And, um, and there's this, she, she does look very suspiciously like the woman in the photo (laughs) who, uh, didn't make her wedding day. (laughs) Yes. Yes, she does. And there's this great shot. One of my favorites. And it's not even like a horror moment. It's more of just like a, a psychological, you know, relationship moment is where Jessica is in the, uh, the, the top floor looking down on a conversation that, that her boyfriend and Emily is having and he gets in the car and then they do this awesome shot of her kind of ducking into the car but it's not enough to know if like you know they kissed or anything like that and it just sets another kind of like a paranoid thought into jessica's head um and i just thought that was a brilliant way to shoot that just just from her point of view you don't see the kiss or anything like that but there's just these implications that something else is is going on and and that was really cool. I liked that a yeah, lot. Yeah, it, it definitely gets at that feeling that she is sort of at a distance from, yeah. you know, some of these relationships that are going on in front of her and that it, it honestly feels very kind of like achingly lonely as even just yeah. the entire movie in that way, the way that they film that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah sure. I think it, I, I, I think that characterization is absolutely correct. And I think the soundscape really helps that because the score is incredibly harsh, but also there are so many films where you will hear voiceover and it's almost eye rolling. It's, it's like a patch. This, I think it works really beautifully because it takes you inside Jessica's head and then also confuses you when she starts hearing uh, Emily or Abigail um, Bishop kind of talk to her because it really puts you in a place of not knowing whether Jessica is actually hearing this or speaking to herself in her head like this because they've set up right. so beautifully that she is consistently in conversation in her own thoughts, in her own head. She, she is someone isolated even within herself. Um, and I yeah. love that. And like, 
all of those moments of her alone and watching and thinking just really mm-hmm. get it. And the camera work is just so immediate and imbalanced. Like it feels imbalanced being with her because everything is sort of on, on shaky ground. Right. Right. And there's like, I, th- I think there's that one part too, where it, it's really focused on her, on her inner thoughts. I think it's when she's, uh, She's attacked, I think, in the water, and she runs home. She just starts hearing like voices pretty aggressively, like more aggressively than we've we've heard throughout the film. Uh, and it's starting to say things like, uh, you know, what have you got to live for? You want to die? You'll never get better. I'll never go away. And mm-hmm. it's it's that's where it gets like really confusing, just with it, like for for the audience and for her, because it feels like she's talking to herself, but it also feels like. You know, th- these thoughts are unnatural. It's it's something that isn't mm-hmm. really her telling her to do these things or feel this way. It's something that's completely out of out of her control. And uh, and then you get those great shots of like the wind, uh, you know, taking up the the stencil work that she did on the tombstone. So she's reminded of death as she's going through this mental anguish. It's that scene is is really really great. Yeah, and it, it just definitely does walk that line of making you wonder, like, you know, is Emily a vampire who is seducing these men in her, her life to make them part of this, you know, sort of like culty town, or is that happening an extension of some of the feelings that she's having towards these people? Like, is she just jealous um, of, you know, the sort of flirtatious uh, interactions that Emily seems to be having with her husband, Duncan. And is, are those feelings then of, of, of jealousy and, and anger at, you know, that actually manifesting into the, into the reality that she's feeling, mm-hmm. um, yeah. at that point. And it, it, it kind of walks that line for you. But I, I do want to say too, that I, I really appreciate, um, Hancock, the way that he, he tackles this. Cause it, it, it's a, a thing that I've never quite felt in this way, which is I think a lot of people I've seen people compare this to obviously, you know, uh, something like Cassavetes, like a woman under the influence, which is his Mm. film about like Peter Falk, um, who is like committing his, um, erratic wife played by Gina Rollins to an institution and all the pain that that kind of ripples through their family and sort of the, the domestic, um, you know, sort of like, arguments that they get into and how close in proximity the photography is to those characters and all of their complex psychological and emotional things that they're experiencing. And this does yeah. also have kind of like that handheld close proximity at times, yeah. but the style itself is also unlike Cassavetes, very quiet at times, very eerie and, and atmospheric. It has that sort of like horror malaise to it. And the actual, you know, it, it's the film's cheaply made. It has that rough scuzzy knit to it of of the seventies to it, where you yeah, almost think <laughs> at times that you should be watching like a cheap slasher. Yeah. Uh, but the actual mo- the actual film is all mood and mystery and like like inner anguish to it. And it's worth noting that like this is a film that like it predates uh, uh, Wes Craven. It predates like Toby Hooper. Carpenter, Bob right. Clark, in many of his different a lot of the big names of what you would, you know, what we now know as like, you know, what the look and feel of 70s horror is. Um, but when 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 this came out, when this was being made, really this was going off more of like people like Romero or right. Polanski, which something like Paul Repulsion uh, kind of comes to mind when I think about this film a little bit too. Even some of the Italian filmmakers who were getting into that stuff a little earlier. Um, it, it actually, I was thinking, it came out the same year as Mario Bava's Bay of Blood. Yeah, and I was thinking, watching this film, I like, yeah, just the, the, the sort of like, 
you know, small countryside by the lake, you know, uh, that, that, but that also with that roughness to it where violence could strike at any moment and some of the bloodiness to it. I mean, there's nothing quite as extreme as Bay of Blood's decapitations or anything going on here, (laughs) but the ending of this film is very, uh, brutal. Um, Definitely. Mm Mm-hmm. And 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 I think you look at this film and you look at Bay of Blood and you have a pretty good idea of what seventies horror was going to look like for the next like eight years. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Which is which is kind of cool just to, just to see something that you know takes place earlier, but you know you know has has a lot of those qualities to it. Yeah, and I think it has a very specific legacy too in these these later mid and late seventies movies that kind of undeniably feel like this, and you know I, I can think of two of them almost immediately that are in the American horror projects that like movies like the child and dark August are very much the sort of lone person comes to the countryside and is sort of psychically taken over. Um, and, and in dark August, I find it really interesting too, cause he's very specifically also from New York and mm. there, there's something that I couldn't, couldn't get unattached from when I was watching this. And I think maybe I'm still working mentally through it, but there's a, there's this timelessness, even though let's go Jessica death feels very specific to the early seventies and setting a tone for seventies horror. There's a timelessness to what's going on in it from people from the city moving up to the country or moving up to the suburb or moving up to some sort of rural area as some sort of reprieve and not obviously you see that in folk horror all the time, but this is addressed in a much more interesting, not much more interesting. I love folk horror, but <laughs> in, in a different way. Yeah. Um, because I think it's specifically talking about like mental anguish of the time, domesticity of the time. Um, yeah. You know, you could probably see there's a world in which Jessica and her husband and her friend eight years ago were completely in the throes of like sixties hippiedom, Right. And definitely a yeah. very specific youth. And now yeah. they're trying to find I, I, I think that's why balance. people bring like the, the Cassavetes. I think that's why they bring that up. Cause it feels like a domestic drama from that specific period in, in, in certain ways for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's why, why, why people kind of come to that. And also Zora was literally just in his opening night <laughs> as well. <laughs> that helps. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that helps. helps too. But yeah, no, but I, I think that that's spot on that because, because that, that's makes the horror elements to me kind of scarier and more intrusive. Yes, it feels absolutely. like they, it, it, it feels like um, they're more unnatural in this kind of um, setting. Like, especially again, when when she starts losing it and you know she's hearing the voices telling her that she wants to die there's a, there's a combination of you know we're thinking about some of the nice domestic scenes where they're going swimming where they're eating there's these sweet melodies that play yeah. and then sometimes the sweet melodies will continue into when the pounding drums kick in and she starts having you know these 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 horrifying visions and about things being in her blood and then the ticking clock going off and the that combating is, parts of her mind expressed physically that is something i noticed that the the score itself is really dynamic and it 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 really tracks what what's going on throughout the film quite quite well and and in that like in that dynamic you're right it does a lot of like it'll have these really droning and melancholic pianos but then have something lighthearted but then have that go over something where the paranoia starts and yeah i i found the music to be uh just a really a really good touch of just kind of 
putting you in that 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 tone and and setting you on the ride. It mm-hmm. was um, it, it, it 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 it's blended in the same way that her psychological state is and how it's yeah, you know yeah right. exactly it has the same dynamics. Yep. Yeah, the the, the, the push I and pull going on there. One of the things that really struck me when I rewatched this was. I think one of the most effective things about the film and about setting up Jessica's character as sort of isolated from everyone else is Zora Lampert, Lampert is unreal in this movie. Her performance is incredible. She's also putting in such a different acting style than everyone else. Yeah. Like Duncan, Woody, uh, Emily, even Emily's character obviously has to ride this line of being sort of ageless, but also very present in her like fluidity and hippiedom, but they all feel very casual and very present day. And I feel like Zora Lamper was putting in a, like an almost classical Hollywood performance of someone who's mentally fragile. And it, mm-hmm. it's just absolutely captivating watching her clash with everyone and not in a bad way in this kind of incredible way that isolates her further from everyone else. Um, and I think highlights the moments where she is also desperate to, fit in and desperate to prove she's better. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really, really cool what the performance she's putting in. And, and I, I just was blown away. I think those it. were like the saddest parts for me was watching her. Uh, like, like I think we mentioned it, but it's at like that dinner sequence where everyone's having a, a good time playing guitar, whatever, but she can only focus on the blood on her plate, you know, and it, it, it's those moments, but, but she still has enough to, to kind of, play the parts for, for the other people at the table. And oh yeah. Just she's, a she's, 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 she's smiling and still kind of making small talk yeah. while we get access to her brain, which is doing the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, there's a lot of sadness to that because it's just, you know, the, the faking of, of, of relationships in, in a way just to satisfy the other person, uh, and, and have no real, I don't know. They have a connection, but it feels like it's not entirely honest. Right. So, mm-hmm. so there's a sadness to that. Yeah, well, and then when, when that deep when sound. that ex- yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. and well and and when that explodes into like the you know like the the full blown like horror finale that this this ends up you yeah. know, having where where she <laughs> like straight you know, slasher she, in a way she hitches a ride into town with a man with a scar on his face and then she finds out like kind of like everyone kind of has like scars on them and she realizes that there there's something you know that maybe the vampire seductress is leaving these scars and then is able to control these people is sort of, you know, part of the implication. Cause she's also bitten Woody on the neck and she's, yeah. you know, uh, she, she, she returns back to, um, Duncan as well, where she tries to like rekindle, you know, some of their relationship that they, they were having only to, you know, find the scar on him as well. And there's like, you know, there's the, the shots of the candle and the tombstone drawing, like blowing in the wind. And she's trying to be like, it's not real. It's all in your mind, Jessica, like just live the happy domestic wife. That's all it is. And then Emily is popping in with the night. <laughs> and yeah. the whole town is in her room and she's like running through the house and knocking yeah, over like you know, Duncan's baby style. Yeah. She's like knocking over the base case, which has the, you know, like the dead mute girl in it who they, who was constantly, uh, she presumes trying to like warn her about the town. I also like when the, like the power goes out, they start using, um, like lamps and stuff. And, and for some reason, just because of the connection with like this old school vampire, uh, it, it seems as if, like you know, they're they're referring back, reverting back to that time period with her, and then mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. having uh, uh, 
the, the one part where she, I think she tries to like escape the town using the ferry. And one guy literally just tells her the ferry isn't running for you as if she's like yep. trapped here. <laughs> Uh, and so that, that was also really, really interesting. It's like the town took on its own, you know, it, it always had its own kind of persona with, with the townsfolk and stuff, but now it's, it's holding her there as well. Not just like it's instead yeah. of telling her to leave, it's, it's holding her there for more, you know, use of her in a sense. Completely. I, I think that kind of comes back around to even then just getting on a ferry in the beginning feels so symbolic to sort of like crossing uh, yeah. I, I don't care. Remember if it's like the river Styx or whatever, but like this is, this is you going to your death and right. yeah. you won't be able to return from that. And it's so sad in, in the best way. I like, I love sad horror. That's, it's like my favorite feeling. I think like, uh, like full circle haunting of Julia to me is just like one of the most aggressive bummer horror movies in the world. And I love it. Um, <laughs> and I love that feeling at the end of this, which even and you almost don't know what's sadder, right? Like if yeah. if Jessica is truly just mentally broken, paranoid to to beyond repair, and has kind of murdered everyone, and is now just floating alone in the lake. That's very sad. But there's also this sadness to to like the way Abigail Bishop slash Emily just kind of walks away when yeah. you know she she's on the land. And all the townspeople are surrounding and looking out at her at the lake. And they all just sort of smile, satisfied with what they've done, and then leave. Like, there isn't some big climax. There isn't some big, like, personal confrontation between the two. It's very just much, like, defeated. And, like, I have you. It's what I wanted. I'll just walk away now. And it's great. Yeah, yeah. At, at, at that point, you just think, okay, they're like successful. We scared the shit out of her enough that she killed all of her closest friends that we were annoyed about anyway, because they were out of towners. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like, 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 like that bit when she finds Woody, she's trying to get Woody's attention on the tractor and his like throat is just slit and the, and the moving and tractor just kind of keeps going oh, on a POV oh, yeah. shot while she's Ooh. chasing it. Or, you know, when, when the hand reaches out of the water and it's so, you know, it's like this zombie moment almost. And she's so terrified that she just stabs the body oh. attached to the hand as much as she can. And it's revealed that it was her husband, Duncan. And oh, my God. Speaking of the, the lake, uh, I love that that moment where Emily rises from the water in the dress. So and, powerful. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's so great. And I love that he, he keeps the shot of like just the still water at first and actually has her rise out completely. Uh, it's just, I, I, it's really cool imagery. And it also is awesome to connect with like how she was kind of seeing that blurred image of Emily underneath the water. Uh, grabbing mm. people and mm-hmm. such. So it was, yeah, that, that part was also really. Well, yeah. Awesome. And then, and then she's the woman on the water having just killed people in the final <laughs> shot of the film. She's sitting on the rowboat in the sunset from the opening shot of the film. Yeah. Um, and she's like and, ma- madness or sanity. I don't know which is which. So it's just like by the end, she has no answers and she's left with nothing. Like, it's yeah, you're just, you're just, you're just, you're just left wondering as the credits roll, as she just sobs and collapses into the rowboat, essentially that too. thinking she, like, that she has her. killed her friend and her husband. Yeah. Like you even see her kind of curled up in, in a ball. And then she just out of like, to, to just emphasize the defeat, they have her like just lay down and you don't see anything but the canoe floating there. And it's just fuck man. Brutal. <laughs> Sad. Brutal. I love, that image of Emily coming out of the lake 
it, it's cool. so interesting, you know, like this movie in, in a lot of ways has some non-traditional feeling or, you know, may, at times may not even feel like what people think of as a horror movie. And then you get that image that is just like one of the most powerful horror movie images I've ever seen. Yeah. Just like yeah, the, the ideal of sort of Lady of the Lake iconography rules. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we're going to pivot towards the uh, reductive rating round here, which for you, Sam, is where we remove all the words, all the nuance, and reduce the movie <laughs> between a number between one and five. Um, but it's also turned into like final statements, or if there was any scenes we didn't hit, any lines we didn't hit that you wanted to bring up, uh, um, this is where you do it. But for me, this is going to get a solid to even high four yeah. um, from from me. I mean, for all the reasons that we've said, I think that this is just a, a great combination of kind of like a, um, a, a domestic drama that has all of the kind of, you know, has, has a little bit more severe sort of like mental anguish to it. And it, it, it walks that line of like, of, of, of Henry James's sort of like the subjective ambiguity of the kind of uh, ghost stories that he kind of wrote. And, and it has that quiet, eerie sort of atmospheric feeling to it, but it's also just very both, um, you know, um, achingly lonely when it comes to the character of Jessica and to Zora's like really incredible performance that really makes you feel the, 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 uh, psychological torment that she is going through at every moment that she's going through it. And then also merging that with kind of, you know, like the, the roughness and the scuzziness that was about to come up in the more sort of like paranoid, um, seventies horror style that we were about to get again. I, I feel like there's just something so unique about, feeling like a little bit of that almost Hollywood into the sixties drama being brought into like that really gross, um, horror phase. And mm. the, the combination of both of those really just gets you even more into her psychological, you know, um, point of view and, and really feel what she's, what she's going through. And it is very, very bleak by the time yeah. you get to the end of the film. And it, it, I think Sam was spot on that it, it, it almost doesn't matter which of these two events actually took place. They're both really sad. <laughs> yep. Oh, absolutely. Oh uh, yeah. I would give it a, I think a high four as well. This, um, this, this really blew me away. I, I like Hancock's uh, way that he can kind of balance between the thought of, is this kind of like a vampiric small town takeover or is this all just a psychological, you know, end of the hippie era. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that too. Yeah. And then to add, like, like turn this psychological horror movie into a, like a slasher for like 10 minutes, just the, the, it, it's it's genius because it's all been boiled up to get to that point and um and he just he he rides that line so perfectly it's like you really don't quite fully know what happened by the end of this even with the visual of emily uh sitting on the shore and with the smiling men there's just something about you know lampert's performance that gives off some like this this uh this agony that can't quite even be like tangible it, it, it it's like uh it's something that you could mm -hmm. only feel um, in a Definitely. sense. So yeah, it, this was, this was, uh, really amazing. I was really blown away by this one. So, uh, yeah, I, I give it a high four for you, Sam. I, I adore this movie. Uh, it really is one of my favorite movies. It's, it's a very easy five for me. I, amazing. I, I think I first saw this as a kid, um, you know, I, I, trying to watch everything I could find in video stories that was horror based. 
and the title is the title is so outsized in a way you know i think a lot of people even heard this title without having seen the movie and are very aware of it and <laughs> i remember not being really drawn to the movie as i was watching it but not totally getting it um especially at that time considering everything else i was watching and probably much more focused on kind of more in your face style and in your face blood and all that yeah. kind of fun stuff and just every time i revisit it i appreciate it more and you know, I don't know if I'd grow with it, but I certainly feel th- this movie feels adult in in the best ways, and not not in a stuffy way, but in really like its concerns are adult. Yeah, and I love very it. Very mature. I, and they, yeah, I feel like I grow with it, or like grow into it every time I watch it, and especially this last time, just being completely blown away by the performances and and by the sort of teetering edge it leaves you on of just going. It, it doesn't matter what interpretation you walk away with because both are, are sad and and longing and creepy in in all the best ways. And then even if you go with the supernatural route, it just has all of like my weird little comforts of like a land and ha- like the soil and the house and negative energy just flurrying around yeah. the town and you know this one figure sort of stalking the countryside and seducing everyone in in a very 1800s dress rising out of the lake like even those sort of like surface comforts of the genre are present uh and i i love it i i, I absolutely adore this movie yeah i i love the moments where it'll take a break to like observe the sky or the water or the trees or the location you get you do get something kind of like elemental out of that a little bit where you know, these are physical things that should be immutable, like immutable, almost like unlike our minds, which are very uh, easily uh, disassembled. <laughs> yeah. I also like the like the contrast between they, they use that that sunset or sunrise shot uh, twice, one in the beginning where it kind of sets a tone of like it's mysterious, but there's there's also kind of a calming presence to it and then we get the same shot but at the end knowing everything that happened prior and you're just left with with absolutely no peace of mind (laughs) at all and that sunset just it almost appears uh i don't know it's it's, it's almost ironic that the image is calming but the actual events were very chaotic (laughs) yeah absolutely so yeah this was it was awesome really liked it hell yeah well that'll wrap it up for let's scare jessica to death we are going to be right back and we're going to be talking about the legend of hell house i don't accept this i do not accept this All right, we are back and we are talking The Legend of Hell House, the 1973 British supernatural horror film directed by John Huff and uh, based on the 1971 novel Hell House by um, Richard Matheson. Now, I don't think that we've talked about Richard Matheson yet on the show because we did... um, What's uh, we went on friend of the show podcast. I can't remember which one it was, but we we talked about uh, his I Am Legend adaptation. Oh yeah, we did the we did the Omega Man and I Am Legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
because um, that was the novel that that he wrote very famously. But he also did the short story and uh, the adaptation that would eventually be uh, Steven Spielberg's Duel, yeah. which we've covered on the show, which is great. Um, and then so there's also w- a, a, a book that he wrote called uh, The Shrinking Man. And uh, I'm just going to leave that <laughs> which hanging will be re- for now. <laughs> And when we get to the finale, then I'll, I'll bring it up again. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, we definitely are going to be bringing up the shrinking man at some point. <laughs> um, but um, this one, um, directed by uh, the British filmmaker John John Huff, this is, I think, one of the more popular ones that that he's done. But he did a he had a very interesting genre career where he you know he did like Disney movies, Escape to Witch Mountain. Yeah, just watch um, that actually. He, uh, shortly before his Disney movie, he did, uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, which is like <laughs> one of the, um, it's, it, it's, it's a Peter Fonda road movie, but it has one of the most insane, dark, bleak endings <laughs> I've ever seen to a movie, um, which, which is great. And obviously that was like big inspiration on something like Death Proof. Um, we're also going to, he, and uh, next week we're going to be talking about it. But previously before having seen this, I also saw a movie he did called, called the Incubus, which is uh, John <laughs> Cassavetes versus a shape shifting rape demon monster. Yeah. Uh, shot in Toronto, really which obviously being, being uh, Canadian boys, we have to talk about any uh, Toronto shot movies that we can. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Even the ones with crazy demon rape ghosts or whatever it was that's right that's right especially um uh but uh very loosely uh legend of of hell house is um about a sort of like team of both physicists and uh psychic mediums Mm -hmm. investigating this house uh also also known as hell house obviously but it also has a couple other names we'll get into um and because the the previous owner in the house it is suggested has possibly found um the secret to uh life after death um whether that is like literal life or whether that is just you know being able to survive as some sort of spirit that is haunting a place uh the characters are going to kind of find out throughout throughout the film but they are hired by a millionaire who you know wants to live uh, eternally uh if that is possible and whether this previous millionaire actually figured that out or if people are just superstitious um so the vast majority of this movie is them this this group of people hanging out in this house um doing a little bit of the the science versus the spiritualism of uh life after death and things slowly start to go awry things go bump in the night Yes, yes. I love the the tone setting of this, just with the opening text, where where they're just like, uh, "Yes, this this film is fiction, but the psychic phenomena <laughs> is very possible." And it's and it's signed <laughs> by like an actual clairvoyant psychic I consultant and everything. Yes, and it was yes. it says t- uh, to royalty as well. Like I, I don't know if it was like the queen's psychic or some shit, but. <laughs> It was, I, I got a kick out of that. That was, yeah, I one of, that one of the all time great opening disclaimers to a film. All of this is fictitious, but that doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's totally possible. I love it. That was great. Could very well happen. Well, and just the, the, the opening mood setting in general, um, 
is is very well done on on Hoff's part here because you know obviously you know he he's behind you know he's done like gothic style hammer stuff with like twin of twins of evil and yeah. he's done all kinds of different you know kind of genre bending stuff but one thing that really stood out about this this opening and even just the way that he implements like the the title sequence and things like that it's almost like a team sure. building montage yeah, where yeah. The, the the millionaire <laughs> he's you know he's he he's giving them their job to to do the investigation then he's teaming them up you know with the mental mediums and the and the spiritualists and they all unite as a group of four at this house you know as the as the the music you know kind of kind of builds up to it and then we get the shots of the foggy gothic house their slow entrance to the property and then bam legend of hell house yeah we're here Big yellow this font. is the beginning love it uh, yeah, I the, also and, really and, like even the way that he films the old like billionaire uh, just kind of alone in this incredible location. Like that house was just unbelievable wherever they, they filmed that. But just him kind of just sitting in a room, really brightly lit, beautiful place, just alone and just kind of like, just go do this because I bought it. You know, just j- just to express the, the, that like just pure loneliness that he must be feeling, but probably due to his own actions in life. I just like that the, how that he filmed the first five minutes of this like lone billionaire. I think yeah. we'll yeah. we'll certainly get into this as we talk more about the the film and escalation of the Legend of Hell House. But my absolute favorite thing about this movie is that John Huff, Alan Hume, n- never ever 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 waste a shot in this movie. It is one of the best examples of two people working together and knowing exactly where to put the camera every single time it's insane yeah. uh, every confrontation every bit of exposition you know ronnie mcdowell the train going by him in such a sort of grand way in his introduction everything feels dynamic in this movie in a way that kind of blows my mind because it's also not showy it's also not like yeah precious or ornate in a way that i think we've been conditioned to you know know what like a stylish filmmaker is um like this movie is just unreal stylish without calling attention to itself and it blows my mind yeah i agree yeah i i I love when they first approach the house like the low angle wide shot looking up at the imposing house and and the fog on the ground and like the black cat running by and everything like that like it he has a really good in in everything that i've seen so far from him he does just have a really good sense of 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 mood for him and he he does do you know like some really solid camera trickery to like do that you know there's there's some sudden cuts to like some wide angle lens shots of rooms there's like uh split diopters going on there's like ceiling mirrors and very fluid dollies and and things like that one of my favorite shots was actually when they just opened the the front door to the to the old mansion and um it's just their like silhouette in the door and the light coming from uh like from Mm -hmm. the from the doorway just opening up the hall and it's just very cool very ominous there's a real mood to it uh and I i loved that there's a lot of that as they enter the uh, the Mount Everest of haunted houses, as they <laughs> <Yes>. put it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I love the, the, the delivers on that. This movie's vicious, and it's it's one of my very favorite things about it. That's true. When it starts to get to some of the like uh, the just the violence activity. and par- yeah, <laughs> the stuff that they see, uh, like like the cat, for instance. Um, he does Oof. go pretty pretty gruesome at times, for sure. 
Yeah, well, and I, I like, too, that they kind of set up some of the history of it, too, where it's like, you know, the they, they're going in and one of the guys who's one of the previous mediums has um, already been there before. He investigated the house like yeah. 20 years earlier. And he was the His only survivor, like I believe. Yeah. And, and, <clears throat> yes. and, uh, and, and they say, like, you know, do you have something that you want to tell us about, like, the owner? And he's like, what's to tell? The house tried to kill me and it almost succeeded. So and, 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 and his whole thing is he's the physical medium. He's the one who's supposed to let the house take over his body and, and use him to move things and things like that. Right. Um, but he is actually closing himself off. And this is from Richard Matheson's story um, because he he thinks that that's more dangerous is that he just doesn't he doesn't even want to let this house access him in any way, even if it you know will will help the investigation. He's just so terrified of it. Meanwhile, the other medium who's supposed to be sort of like the the psychic or the spiritual medium, uh, she starts having her body possessed and she goes through some crazy things where like, you know, she's having uh, the voice like speak through her. Uh, later on, she she has sex with the ghost <laughs> spirit and yeah. like willingly uh, goes along with it and things like that because she thinks that it's like the million, dead millionaire's son who is not at peace because he never had sex, I guess is the idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I like too and, about the oh way they God. do the, the voice when they like do uh, her deep demon voice or whatever, I'm not 100% sure, but it sounds to me like they don't actually ADR a different like demon voice. What they did was they took her voice and then pitched lowered it down to kind of create yes. this like like she's still using her voice to do it in a way. And I like that because it also leads to it, it kind of has that confusing element where the physicist is trying to just prove it as like a, a physical phenomenon and that's it, just pure scientific. Mm -hmm. The mediums are doing the more spiritual element. Electromagnetic science will uh, yeah. un, will ex exercise this house. Yeah, exactly. And, and then her using her actual voice but pitch lowering it just kind of it kind of goes in both realms where it's like she could be faking this, I guess. It's pretty demonic, but maybe. Uh, but then you also have the spiritual side where it's like this is, I mean, very supernatural, clearly. Uh, and I just that, that was a cool design, uh, audio design choice, I think. Mm -hmm. It is. I, I really love <clears throat> the mixture of the phenomena that happens in this movie and in this story. Mm -hmm. it, I love 70s haunted. There's something about the feel of 70s haunted house and haunting stories, especially out of the UK. You know, when you think about like the stone tape and people who aren't like cool ghost hunters, but they're people who generally want to understand what's happening. There's a lot of like knob turning and mm -hmm. research and, and kind of tapping into the atmosphere of something. And I love that it's three different versions of that coming together in this movie. And it's Dr. Barrett who is a parapsychologist, and it's Fisher, who is uh, a physical medium, and Tanner is the mental medium, and if she, of course, starts to manifest physically. And it all preys on them in different ways. I love I love movies about kind of hotbeds of negative energy. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, yes, it's stemming from Emmerich Belasco, but he sort of built this home, this kind of, you know, monument to horribleness. You know, if you go by all of the fun things that Roddy McDowell lists when uh, Dr. Barrett's <laughs> wife asks what's happening, what, what happened yes, in this house. Uh, drug addiction, drugs, alcoholism, cannibalism, <laughs> necrophilia. And he's yeah. just like, boom, boom, boom. Bestiality. The <laughs> and then, and then, and then she goes, when did it end? And he goes, if it had ended, we wouldn't be here. I, I, I just, I love everything about this. It's, 
it's funny to talk about this movie in a way that tries to sound intelligent because I just love it so much that I get hyped when I like think <laughs> about all the moments and I, I start to sound dumb because I'm just like, I love this line and I love this sweater and I love this camera move. Um, <laughs> But I think it's a great way of illustrating kind of all of their weaknesses and all of their motives and how he uses everything against them. You know, maybe in a way that Let's Go Jessica to Death does too. I, I, I don't want to try and tie them too much together where they're not, maybe not compatible, but I think each of them is four people in a home that is kind of feeding and overwhelming them in different ways. Um, yeah, and, and being, being manipulated by like, you know, yes. you know, if, 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 if we go by the supernatural reading of let's go Jessica to death, they are being manipulated by, you know, the, the someone who previously lived in the house yeah. and, you know, is, is, you know, historically haunting it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, oh, and even just the way it starts, you know, it kind of get, hits the ground running in these big ways of, you know, Tanner's like, I want to sit tonight and, and starts to manifest. And then the next night when she sits and it's bathed in red and it's just one of the most beautiful images you've seen of a seance. I love the image of the wide room where Barrett's machine kind of replaces like the fourth person. Like it's almost like if you considered it a seance, they would almost be holding a hand with his <laughs> machine. It becomes like a character of of his parapsychological research. Um, And then it just builds the most beautiful images of Pamela Franklin bathed in red and and kind of manifesting ectoplasm. And I I don't know if there are cooler images in a supernatural haunting movie kind of period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I I also really just love the the house, like the set itself. Absolutely. Like the the, the cobwebs and the the wood furniture. Very classic haunted house. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so much of it's just like such ghastly decor, like old, old style millionaire stuff. Like there's one bedroom that's just covered in like red velvet walls. Yeah. I think it's where (laughs) I think that's who uh, the, the, the female psychic stays too. Cause that's where she has all her, like, I think that's where she has her sex scene and she ends up having mm-hmm. kind of growing a odd relationship with the entity and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When mm-hmm. he's just, he's deceiving her. Uh, yeah. As and having Daniel, that, like there's having that ghost sex scene in that like red velvet room is something too. Like there's like, there's an odd because she's loving at first. There's this like odd, I don't, I don't even want to say romance, but just the imagery itself kind of speaks romance. And then she starts screaming and things go awry. But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I felt like that, um, that there's definitely a weird sensation there because, because she, she is definitely like welcoming the spirit as like, uh, I'm doing something good and romantic for this spirit. Yes, that's her, right. that's her read of it, even though she's being manipulated into, you know, uh, by the spirit and, and she doesn't just quite know it yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and she yeah, is very kind of what I what I love about how it it comes for Miss Tanner is you get the sense uh, I, I know they flesh it out much more in the book that she is religious, but her purpose she really feels like she is there to help and she is in service of kind of whatever the presence is and hmm. bringing it to peace and the idea that she could help. Uh, what she believes to be the entity's son, Daniel Belasco, move on and find a grace and a peace outside of the darkness of this home is ultimately what is her downfall because she lets it too far in and she's manipulated. 
and it's a really kind of tragic kind of beautiful aspect to this this very creepy movie that doesn't take and maybe it was before we we kind of got conditioned to a certain type of scare like what a certain scare meant in a haunted house movie but i love mm-hmm. that none of that really exists there aren't really like physical ghost manifest manifestations that like pop in or out or jump scare right. you it's all really yeah. interesting it's all like it's the ectoplasm or it's things moving and really not only really violent ways but really human ways like it's not just like oh a teacup fell like when the ghost leaves her room you see his path you see like knocked over this table pushed this away opened the door and slammed it and everything feels it's almost like what you're saying with her voice going down Mm-hmm. Is it feels both supernatural and human and like human behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And physical for sure. And I think there's also like a, a tragedy to her character where she seems like the only one that really wants to, to help what she believes is, is a, a spirit that's kind of just lost in the ether or whatever. Whereas like the, the, the physicist, you know, he's purely just trying to solve it scientifically and he's, He's also very cold as as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wife uh, of the physicist um, seems to be also a, a skeptic, and then she starts to get into some weird uh, sexual possessions, which we'll which we'll get to. And then um, the the male psychic he is just completely locked out, so he really has no interest in helping because he just feels if he's taken over, then bad things will happen. So there just is a real tragedy to her having this hope and uh, having this, this kindness to want to bring a spirit over to the better side, and that's, that's her downfall. And she's really the only one with that kind of that hope and positivity. Yeah, yeah I, I love Lionel doing the Exorcist 2 style like experimentations oh, with like yeah. the infrared and the he's like I can remove this e- electromagnetic energy from this space and you know? <laughs> yeah yeah it's great. But, the, but then his wife starts having uh, sexual feelings that uh, he can't uh, quite place in science in the same way. <laughs> yeah. She's like sleepwalking and presenting <laughs> herself to the um, uh, uh, Ben's character. Well, it's yeah. great because that's so clearly the house, both attacking her and him. You know, his, yes. his coldness and research, you can only imagine how it translates to their marriage and <laughs> <Right>. what... <laughs> which she's not getting and kind of that moment <laughs> when she yells uh, at Roddy McDowell, like someone better touch me or I'm forgetting the line exactly, but it's some sort of, you know, mix between supernatural takeover and her very raw feeling of clearly how she's treated in this marriage or, or how he treats her as a person. And, yeah. and that's an incredible moment too. just her coming down the stairs and trying to seduce Roddy McDowell supernaturally it's it's very creepy and feels very loss of control and this film like let's scare jessica death hits close-ups in really incredible ways and really understands how to get across and especially in that moment when she is in such psychic distress and she's like drunk fighting yeah no that that that, that line that she gets it's uh touch me or i'll get someone else to (laughs) yes (laughs) oh man i think that's too where they i like the 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 camera work here just uh, on the reveal because i think they have her in the in the forefront of the camera and then just really blurred you can see the husband or the physicist on the balcony just kind of watching over them 
to reveal that like he's mm-hmm. starting to see what's been going on. Like, is this a possession? Is my wife just trying to cheat on me? Like, what's going on here? But I did really like that he's just kind of subtly uh, blurred in the background to kind of reveal this is going to start some really bad uh, stuff between uh, with uh, with the relationships. So there's incredible yeah, spatial awareness in this movie of, of where people are in respect to each right. other constantly. Um, it, 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 I love the cinematography and I love, you know, how it lets people kind of move around the space, but not in a, not in a casual way. It all feels very precise, but you know, even in the beginning when it first, they first open the door and you get those silhouettes, I, I can't remember who, but I feel like Miss Tanner comes all the way up to the camera and everyone is still way behind her. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just so cool how everyone gets framed in this film. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I I really like when it takes off into the more supernatural elements too, like the sequence when the house just starts whipping objects at them. <laughs> yeah. And like slamming the table around the fireplace is like exploding. That was sick. And, and yeah. And and things like that. Like that that sequence is is intense, but also there's one that's like the bit with the uh the bat from Suspiria, but it's like the cat. And it's just like <laughs> keeps like whipping around the room and like attacking her <laughs> and stuff like that. Um there's there's some some like there's well a, done just like classical sort of supernatural horror sequencing in this like dude, when it when it decides to go that route. I just remembered too the, the after the the cat sequence like this cat just just fucks her up real bad. But then yeah, she that cat scratching her, goddamn. Oh, it's brutal. And then she she closes the door and they have this amazing shot of the cat's claws trying to get under the door still. Like it's just <laughs> yes. so determined to kill her. It, I I honestly laughed a little bit. It was it was in a good way but it was it was very funny in a in a sense well i think yeah, i that. think there's these moments that that hit that sort of like kitschy gothic horror like you mentioned the cobwebs there's this moment toward the end when uh gail honeycutt who plays dr barrett's wife runs face first into some cobwebs and it's <laughs> yes it, it's in any other movie it's sort of like kitschy goofy gothic horror but her like mania and distress also because at that moment dr barrett's been like brutally murdered by a chandelier you, yeah. you just feel bad you're just like oh now she has to deal with this cobweb in her face too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bad day <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's great well, and, I love and yeah this. and this 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 all kind of like leads into obviously there's like you know the the supernatural things are happening and it's really scaring you know basically everyone involved they know that something strange is happening but but lionel is convinced that you know this machine that he's building will be able to you know attack the demons yeah it'll be to able to attack this this energy that exists in, in inside this house everyone else is you know especially the two women who are there are basically the being um, you know, brutalized and pode- possessed in these very sort of like yeah. strange and, uh, you know, people are, are getting a little maniacal and getting a little um, wild. But <laughs> um, as it gets to, you know, sort of like the the climax where they find, you know, there's, there's a hidden chapel inside the house and they're like well what the what the hell is sort of like this going on here and the the underground bunker kind of looks like the underground um bunker in like prince of darkness yeah yeah (laughs) and uh the sort of a psychic medium here is actually i think she she's eventually like crushed by by a crucifix and she also tries to like break the machine 
because she doesn't actually want them to murder the spirit because she thinks again that the spirit is just the the millionaire sort of like misunderstood young son right um when when it is eventually revealed that it actually is the millionaire but he's just pretending to be that he's pretending to be like a different spirit to every single person that he's kind of presenting himself to he's kind of so he's really a physical spirit but he's also gaslighting everyone at the same time it's like a combination (laughs) of both of those forms of horror it it stays the whole time (laughs) yeah Oh yes, God. and then and then obviously Lionel is 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 killed by the, the the chandelier. So it's really just you know his his wife and um, Fisher, the physical medium, who are kind of um, alive at this point, and both are determined at that point that they really need to to follow through and 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 get the house clear. Yeah, and because then it's, get it's the just taking. It's accumulating a body count, you know, um, and and what Fisher kind of realizes is actually that it's a combination um, of both the science and the spirit that is that is happening here. That actually Lionel's machine um, would work, um, but the reason that it didn't really work is because the chapel was kind of closed off, and the chapel is actually mm-hmm. where the actual body and the spirit are sort of like manifesting um, a yeah. little bit. And this moment, I gotta say, <laughs> the, it. This is my first watch with this film, which I think is important context. This kind of blew my mind in a way that I wasn't prepared for. Um, (laughs) That he shit talks a ghost? That, but but how he shit talking the ghost and what the ghost's motivation has been this whole time. And also the way that this is framed as like Fisher's manhunter moment where it's like, he's (laughs) like, it's, it's, it's you and me now sport. Like you did that. Didn't you, you son of a bitch. But like, it's that moment where he's solving the mystery and it's done in sort of like this monologue exposition where he's putting the pieces together on screen with his brain right in front of us. And what he has actually figured out was that Belasco who, you know, it was it was rumored, you know, that he was this this roaring giant, this six foot five man who had the face of a demon that had taken on some human aspects. And, you know, his 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 house was he sort of used his his money and his strength to impose, you know, all of these sadistic perversions, you know, onto the group of, of people in his house and all of the cannibalism and the vampirism and the necrophilia and everything that he wanted to get done. That was how he did it was he terrorized people into kind of having these uh, very violent orgies at his house. Yes. And that's what we know about up until this point. And then Fisher goes, what if, what if he was short? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and that, that, and, and he pieces this together by going, all of the violence that has been directed at us has been shattering, mutilating, or taking revenge on legs. And that he, he declares <laughs> that Belasco is actually the son of a whore and that he was no roaring giant, but instead he was a funny little bastard and that he actually had stunted legs that made him super tiny and that he and paid doctors them. and they showed the stunted legs Amazing. and they pay, he paid doctors to give him these extended overly long legs to give him height. And what is he yelling? He's like, what size were you five foot two? One. I know. I'll bet you were, weren't even five foot tall. And he's saying it in like, it's, it's purely like, it's, it's super epic. It's super serious. He is fucking screaming at this demon. Wind is blowing in his face. Like this is, this is that finale moment. Right. And, and, I mean, I, it worked for me in a sense of like, uh, 
Like th- there's something funny and, and it's, ch- charming to that, but but at the same time, it, it did take out a lot of like the the kind of like more more scary uh, atmospheric elements of the first hour and fifteen minutes. Um, I, I did laugh. I'm gonna say like when this started to oh, go yes. off, I was having a a, a good time though. Like it, it's it, I had a it's really absolutely crossed, insane. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, had a it, really it, it's weird. One of, it's one of the weirdest reveals that I've ever seen in a horror movie just <laughs> and to, in general and to I think. do it so like aggressively too like I know you're not even five feet tall like it's just oh my god it's 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 incredible yeah and it's, then, it's it's a it, it, it's like a world star bit he's like taunting <laughs> him like a bully yeah like, like this you is short like little the... demon ass like it was so funny man. and then uh you uh, do sort of miss him like watching it in 2021 you were kind of sad he never calls him just like a little bitch yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then, and then I looked up, uh, the writer, uh, Matheson, and this is my little joke I had that I left hanging at the beginning, but he has this book that he wrote called, uh, the, the shrinking man. Um, and it's about a, another six foot guy that starts to shrink because of like poison or radioactivity. And I just found it hilarious because looking him up, I, I was like, does, does he have a thing for like short people or something? And then just to to see that he also wrote The Shrinking Man, it, it could not be a coincidence. And I find that just endlessly hilarious that Matheson has Yeah, I actually tried this, to like, look up if intrigue. there was a record of how tall Matheson was. I, I did too. I did too. It. I couldn't find it. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I, maybe, I'm now he, very maybe curious he was to go just. through his like, Twilight Zone episodes <laughs> and see what sort of weird small stuff is going on in there. I, I was like, yeah, was Matheson sure. the, just the original short king and the movement just hadn't started yet and he was very upset about it. Yeah, and he's like, well, then I'm making a ghost that's taking revenge on all these tall motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, man. Which, which, is, which, is, which is, it would seem very introspective so for incredible. a short king to understand the, uh, the insecurity that would, yeah. bes- that would lead <laughs> yeah. one to build Under- cannibalistic orgies. <laughs> he understands the short man syndrome. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he so despised his own shortness. He <laughs> cut both of his legs off and wore prosthetic extensions to make himself tall and imposing. Uh, incredible. Just like, I don't even, it's, I'm still processing it, honestly. Yeah. And then, and then, and they find his body moves. behind the chapel in a lead fortress, which was protecting the spirit from the electromagnetic machine. Right. He's just which, on like a throne or something like the dead body. Yeah. And so he predicted this like fake science from the future. <laughs> <laughs> this guy was something else, man. He, he was ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 anyway, watching this film, which is, which is very atmospheric, it has a very awesome sort of like combination of sort of like hammer and Italian kind of like Gothic horror kind of combined a little bit. Yeah. And the fact that this climax is just on the protagonists, like basically doing the giant man hunter pieces coming together, you know, uh, <laughs> speech, yeah. but it's ultimately is taunting the spirit for just being <laughs> short. You ain't even five feet tall. Incredible. So funny, man. Incredible. Like, seriously, I, I didn't even really, I, I couldn't even have another reaction to it. I was just losing my mind. Yeah, me too. Me too. And this is our, both of our first time, right, Josh? Yeah. Yeah. How many times have you watched it, Sam? Oh, so many. I, I, not only do I love this movie, but, um, my birthday is December 23rd and there are a lot of movies that take places that takes place over the holidays, but there are not a lot of movies that will explicitly call out a title card that says December 23rd. Yeah. So yeah. 
And they do I, that throughout, uh, too, often, that kind of like, yeah, clinical yeah. thing that they so do I, where they're like, it's this time, now it's this time. It's, it felt like kind of like the physicist taking notes or something like that. That's one of the things I really love about the movie is because it, they also serve as these kind of incredible markers of when insane things are happening. And it's, it, it almost feels like jarring that like ecto, like the ectoplasm scene is so dark and red and, and unnerving. And then right after that, it's like two 30 in the afternoon and you're like, oh, shit, if right. that's happening at two 30 in the afternoon, what else is going to go down in this house? Um, I <laughs> yeah, think it's kind absolutely. of like a really great subliminal signal, but I use this movie often, you know, every year on my birthday, I either like, we'll watch it in the morning and like while I'm hanging out or like, you know, eating breakfast or like it's the end of the day. I had a great birthday. I'll like put it on kind of fall asleep to it. So I've seen the movie or parts of the movie quite a lot. It, it, it kind of rides this line between movie I'm astounded by, but also comfort movie for me. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, like, I'm nice. curious how you read th- this ending. Is it like, uh, does it work purely a hundred percent? for you is is do you like like the irony in it uh or i don't know like do you think that he was trying to be kind of tongue-in-cheek in in this regard because the tone doesn't appear that way but it's just so absurd in a sense that i feel it kind of has to be a little bit i i agree especially especially considering that matheson adapted the script himself from his novel and i've only read the novel once i can't remember if it's very, I would imagine it's very similar. Um, yeah. at, at least the ending, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff in the novel that I'd love to talk about, but he, so I, I would imagine there's an archness or a silliness that is kind of inherently understood. I also wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. if John Huff knew this because, you know, you'll watch an interview with John Huff. Who's he's very pleased with kind of like the theatrics of the film. You know, there's that scene okay. where Pamela Franklin is Miss Tanner walks into her room and sees a body under her blanket and she pulls it back. And of course there's nothing there. And I was watching one of the Blu-ray bonus interviews with John Huff and he's sort of like, he was like, that was, that was entirely in camera and people ask me how we do it. And I'm not going to tell you. Um, he's just like <laughs> delighted by the the trickery and the magic that they really awesome. put into this movie. And he loves the cinematography and he talked about like him and Alan Hume working together and he's just like, we loved having a busy camera and just working so much and achieving these shots. And it really shows kind of, I, I, I don't think they were taking the piss because I think they're really proud of the movie and they're really proud of kind of everything that went into it. But I certainly, yeah. you have to understand that like having Roddy McDowell scream at a ghost because he's short is inherently silly. So <laughs> yes, I think maybe years ago there was a point where I was like, I don't know if this totally works for me. I think I know the movie so well now that it's it's mm-hmm. you, you sort of come around to something and go, oh, that's just one of the things I love about it. Like that absurdity that I can recognize. But now I know the movie so well and I know all the things that go on in it that it's just one of the things I now appreciate or love, even if maybe it's not maybe if it's not tonally as great. But also I, I can see the argument that after them dealing with such viciousness, you know, we are mm. in a world where kind of short, insecure people take out, <laughs> their, you know, worst impulses uh, mm-hmm. on people just because of because they have the power and money. They to are, do and it. that's not to sh- that's not to disparage anyone who is a short king or a short queen. <laughs> or a short man. God bless you. I want you to be happy. Um, you know. 
uh, there's nothing to do with shortness, but I, I certainly think insecurity yeah, yeah. can uh, do some, some horrible things to people's yeah, psyche. The Sleezoids podcast uh, officially endorses short kings, for a- sure. Absolutely, 100%. yeah. And I no think, matter uh, the opinion on the legend of Hellhouse and uh, the short king status of one Emmerich Belasco. <laughs> I think yeah. uh, Hoff might have actually respected the, the ghost a little bit, what with all his trickery and all that. He's like, I won't tell you <laughs> how I do it. I also love that it's Michael Michael Guff is or Michael Go. I, I never I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but I love that it's him. Like he's dead Emmerick Belasco and like what is seemingly a cameo. I have no context <laughs> for how famous he was in the UK at this time. Uh, when I first saw this, I probably knew him best from uh, Batman, right? He was Alfred. Am I oh, okay. That? Yeah, Batman and Batman Returns. Yeah. 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 So just he and he's so even that moment is like kind of what I, even though the ending is silly with, with what Roddy McDowell says, there is a creepiness to once they cross over into that lead room and it's just mm-hmm. preserved Emmerich Belasco. And you're sort of like, for a moment you're like, has he been alive this whole time? It, yeah. Has he just been a fucking creep? And he's kind of <laughs> sitting there and he's dead and he has like a glass of wine and he's still holding. A, yeah. A, that was, it's like an uncanny moment that, that like adds just like one last bit of creepiness to you. Even when they leave the house at the very end, they sort of like still frame the house as a threat and the cat yeah. as a threat. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah. sort of just yeah, like, do, oh, do you this, know what it actually reminds me of? It reminded, it reminded me of um, the abominable Dr. Fibs. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. when, 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 when he's got the Im- embalmed like sarcophagus of like his wife that they find yeah, yeah. Um, in the basement when they come and get him um, that, that Vincent Price has that's what I was reminded of a, a, a little bit because like his, his body is just preserved like behind the chapel and then they mm-hmm. realize sort of like in, 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 in the plotting that they're like well now that we've opened this up let's just turn the machine on and it'll work now <laughs> yeah yeah and it's which solved. is which is one thing maybe as we pivot towards the reductive rating round because this one this one uh, on my first watch anyway this is going to get the high three for me mm-hmm. i i could see this one growing on me for sure because i was mostly just taken aback <laughs> by the ending and i me feel too. like if i watched it again i might even see more of the detail leading up to a little more that's definitely helped on on other things that we've watched for the show but there was something especially maybe even unfairly just with the pairing of let's scare jessica to death where i was like I, I felt like where that I loved so much the sort of like psychological and stylistic ambiguity of it. Right. And there was something that I felt like Hoff, who really effective horror filmmaker and a lot of the the mood and the atmosphere of, you know, so much of what's happening between, you know, the different characters who are pushing against each other, or like both ideologically, like in terms of the science versus the spiritualism, and then also in their own relationships and the way that the the spirit is sort of manipulating them um, very specifically and personally to hurt them in, in ways mm-hmm. like all of that stuff was so effective for me um when we got to the fact that there is just such a literal solved reason for all of it i couldn't <laughs> help but just kind of feel like a little bit disappointed even even though it's still so weird and kind of yeah. flabbergasting that i was still taken with it in like a completely different way um there was just something i think that you know, it ended up kind of undermining some of the scariness for me a little bit. Yeah. Just, just in that resolution that I, I and especially too, cause he was, it's very clear. Matheson was also kind of inspired by Shirley Jackson, which was also inspiration for let's scare Jessica to death. Okay. Yeah. And it, it definitely, um, you know, 
ended up not feeling that way for me. But I, I do want to give this one an, another shot because even though it doesn't quite have that brutal uncertainty to it that Hancock really indulges in with like the subjective sensations of, of, of the filmmaking, like I think that this has elements of that so much throughout it. Um, and then it just kind of has a bit of like a, an, an expository plot wrap up to it that didn't quite work for me, but I, I can't say I didn't, I still didn't enjoy it. Like even, yeah. even the ending, even the part that I think kind of undermines some of the other elements, it, it kind of just goes in its own direction and it, it, it goes into, you know, something that I've talked a lot about when we talk about, you know, sort of like the incomprehensibility sometimes of, mm-hmm. you know, some foreign horror that we do that there, there is a strange factor that almost takes on its own kind of unreality and scariness to it. Yeah. And I, I could, I could see that working for me on a, on, on a second watch for this, but yeah, for, for this one, it's just going to get the high three. Yeah. I'm i I'm kind of, I'm pretty much in the same boat. It's, it, and I, I really do like this, this film, but I want to rewatch it just to see how I react to that ending uh, a second time, knowing what's going to happen because I was very taken back by it. Uh, mostly in a good way. I, it's just, it really did, like you said, undermined the horror element for me just because that first hour, hour, 15 minutes really has some, some, some dark atmosphere that I, really fell in love with. I, I loved it quite a bit. The The look of the set, uh, the way that the camera moves throughout it and shows people in certain places, it's it's a very effective. And then and then when you have him yelling, like, you're only five foot tall, you little demon bitch and shit like that, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny and I, and I do like it. And there's a charm to how just absurd it, it all is. And honestly, it does kind of connect that whole like, the mm-hmm. physical realm with the spiritual realm that the that the movie was doing and kind of dealing with like really basic human insecurities uh, and <laughs> and I think that that has some that that's something to say yeah but, that uh, are then expressed in these bizarre sort of like silly deranged yeah, <laughs> yeah horror exactly. sequences yeah exactly exactly and uh, so yeah I, I I am fully on board with with giving this a rewatch I was just so taken back by the by the ending that I don't know how exactly to feel about it yet. But I will say that I've been thinking about it nonstop since I've, since I've watched it just because it's, it, it has a lot of weird and intriguing decisions that, uh, I want to dive into again. So yeah, but between this and what we're going to talk about next week, uh, John Hoff, (laughs) what a, what a guy. Yeah. I got to go through more of his stuff. (laughs) He's so strange. Like I just watched, uh, escape, to Witch Mountain, which is also about like two psychics, but they're kids, and uh, and it turns into this like weird, like there's like extraterrestrial stuff with with government corruption and agents co- going after the kids and all that, and it's a Disney movie. <laughs> it's just like he's he's very strange, and and I'm looking forward to just watching all of his stuff because he's quite the character. It seems awesome. Uh, yeah, high three you, for now. Um, probably not a surprise because I brought it with Let's Scare Jessica, but you know, this really yeah. is one of my favorite movies. Um, it, it's a big old five for me. Uh, nice. Oh yeah. Go I, for it. We love that. I just, I think it's a haunted house movie kind of like no other. Um, which is really interesting to me because I don't also see a lot of movies that I feel are necessarily influenced by it. I think haunted house filmmaking has kind of more or less followed a particular track for, yeah decades um which is not necessarily a bad thing because that's another aesthetic that i love and and a mood that i love but most of them don't really get to this place and i think this is a really fun 
absolutely wild and kind of ambitious movie. I mean, it's all in one house, yes, but John Huff and Alan Hume really go for it with the camera in the most striking of ways. And that that is everything from sort of bigger scenes of both supernatural and psychological torment, you know, diopters and, and spiral moves and, you know, revealing characters at first through mirror and then kind of turning down to show the expanse of the room and where people are or where they thought you are, where you thought they were. I, to just moments of kind of straight up interaction at the very beginning when Dr. Barrett goes to get the assignment to go to this house, um, him and that millionaire are framed in this like tilted, very confrontational kind of close up of both their faces at each other. And it's, it's really dynamic and really exciting. And I love that about this movie. I just love the ambition of, of kind of like, we're not going to waste a moment. Like everything you see is going to be performed in a really fascinating or interesting way is going to be shown to you in a really kind of freaky, dynamic, moody way. You know, even like all the stuff with Fisher kind of recounting what, what happened in the house. It's, it's always very specific. It's never just someone being like, here's the moment where I give you exposition. Like Roddy McDowell is a great performer and he knows probably because he's like a trained, like very theatrical person, but you know, he's going to tell you this in the most interesting way imaginable. And that kind of happens with everyone and everyone puts in such a great performance. I love Pamela Franklin. I love her like innocent optimism and how Mm. that is completely perverted to the moment where they come in and find her in the bed abused and traumatized and she like spins around and starts laughing with these really crazy eyes and it's just like a moment that lives with you (laughs) yes oh yeah like the cross on her even that manages to like be tragic like yeah yeah. all of the deaths like manage to be like sad and tragic and like we've seen a million things where like chandeliers are threats and it's 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 a trope or it's like a, a kitschy moment now but when you see Dr. Barrett underneath it, it's vicious. And it kind of yeah. is just like, yes, you're used to that as like an idea that this could happen to someone in a movie and maybe it'd even be funny. But in this case, it's brutal. Um, yeah. And I just appreciate that about this movie. And I, I love it. I, I love it. And also, you know, it's my birthday movie and I love that. Um, <laughs> and, and I love the book and I, I really highly recommend. I need to read the book. book. Yeah. It's, I, I don't remember it as well as I wish I did, and I, I'm probably going to reread it this year. But one of the things that I love about it is it's still all in the house, but it's a bit more expansive. You get a lot more of the short Fisher talking about what happened the previous time. And yeah, like some of what happens with Tanner and the ghost that's seducing her kind of brings her into another time period and moments. So you oh, get cool. brought into these like sequences and scenes of. Belasco house at its kind of peak of like, you know, depravity and, and banquet. Um, it's some really cool moments that hundred percent. I really do think that as much as I love this movie, there's, there's certainly another adaptation to be done of this, that kind of adapts more of the, more of the stuff that kind of floats in and out of time, but also it gets pretty grotesque. Like it really takes you to Belasco house and it's gnarliest days. Um, Yeah. That, that was what I read. I I read that the, uh, the novel has like some, some very explicit um, descriptions of like the kind of stuff that they were doing in the house. Okay. hundred percent. It's, it's, it's brutal. Um, It's, it's awesome. I love this book. I love this movie. 
Uh, and I really enjoyed watching these together, like, and just thinking about, hey, these are two of my favorite movies. What are their, what are their wavelengths and where are they different? You know, it's really interesting to watch a movie that is as exacting and precise as Hell House in its movement, um, in its sequence and in its composition, and then watch something like Jessica, which feels a bit more fluid and a bit more immediate and not necessarily on the fly or improvisational, but certainly, um, unpredictable. Definitely. Uh, and, but, Definitely. But they have, you know, they have that psychic imbalance and they have, you know, four people in a home and, and sort of negative energy swirling on them and preying on them and, and these, these curses and these histories that live on and kind of consume our, our brains. I love them. I, I think I love stories like yeah, this. What, what does this say yeah. about you, Sam? <laughs> uh, that I love aggressive bummer horror. Um, <laughs> with, love the big set. With, with fantastic clothes because like hell house the wardrobe like from roddy mcdowell's turtlenecks to pamela franklin's like big big sort of religious almost dress to abigail bishop's dress and let's scare jessica to death i mean i just i love clothes and i love clothes in movies especially you know there's there's a kind of great age of 70s horrors you know a lot of it's so much less casual um it's so much less like normal everyday people or like teens or, you know, it's always people in like great jackets and great sweaters and great dresses. And it, that captures my attention probably quicker than anything. Um, which is, I don't know oh, what yeah. that says about me, but I'm a, I'm a close <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. Well, I think that that's going to wrap it up for uh, this week's show. That was uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death from 1971 and The Legend of Hell House from 1973. Thanks so much, Sam, for uh, joining us and bringing these films with you. These were great. Um, This is usually the part of the show where if you've got anything to plug, we, uh, we have you do that here. Uh, sure. Um, my, my every day is, uh, is shutter is shutter.com is, is streaming service shutter. I am the director of programming there, which means kind of, I program and curate everything from our catalog and our old school library titles all the way up to our originals and exclusives. Um, and this year, I mean, we had an incredible 2020 and 2020, 2021 my whole goal is to be unignorable um if you are into the genre or care about the genre at all i i i need you to take an interest in what we're doing and i need you to need to take an interest in what we're doing and i think our programming slate and our films both what we're producing and what we're picking up and what we're adding will really reflect that so uh, i hope wherever you are if you're listening if you're in canada or the us or the uk or australia you will check Shutter out or subscribe. Um, we just added a film called Hunted, which is one of my favorite horror movies I've seen this past year. It's a really gripping survival horror that also kind of upends the ideas of survival horror, or at least takes them to a more mythological place. Um, cool. And next week, we are adding The Queen of Black Magic, which is an Indonesian horror film uh, written by Jaco Anwar, who made Satan Slaves and Impedigore, and directed by Kimo Stambowal. It is... I mean, like the platonic ideal of like goopy, gory, creepy, crawly, straight up fun house horror. There's like centipedes out of eye sockets and <laughs> demon witch shit. It rules in like every conceivable sense. Like if you are craving like a Friday night pizza horror movie that will like make you cheer, but also freak you out. I promise the queen of black magic is going to be one of the best things you see in quite some time. I am so excited about nice. this movie. I love it so, so much. 
sounds That's good. Awesome. Well, we're going to be checking those out, and we can recommend Shutter too because oh, yeah. of, I mean, any anyone who listens to this show, you can probably find you know at least a third of our catalog <laughs> yeah. at any given time, probably on Shutter at 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 some point. I mean, sometimes. Sometimes uh, Jamie and I will watch the actual films we're talking about on the show on Shutter. Sometimes, so <laughs> yeah. we can yeah. definitely recommend it. Yeah, I just looked at that uh, haunted poster too. Looks pretty, pretty. Oh wild, man, so we 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 adore it. And sorry, I did just want to say, like, just because I imagine, like, the folks who listen to Sleazoids are down with more obscure stuff and want to discover stuff. Next week, For we sure. are adding. Um, the kind of legendary 1993 Anthony Wong category three horror, the untold story. I think it's the first time it's streaming. Um, it's like one of the most notorious, absolutely great Hong Kong kind of horror movies. Also true crime, also darkly cool. comedic. Uh, it will be in the U S will be in Canada as well. Uh, it absolutely rules. Amazing. I'm really proud that we're having it on the service. So. Okay. Well, I'm going to watch that for sure. I'm, I'm watching yeah, watch listing right all now. these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. That's awesome. Amazing. Uh, well, for our listeners, we are going to be back in uh, one week's time, which bouncing off the legend of, of Hell House and uh, both uh, John Huff and both uh, sort of like uh, clairvoyant uh, psychics, we're going to be talking about one, Brian De Palma's uh, The Fury oh, yeah. from 1978 with Kirk Douglas and, and John Cassavetes, sort of his unofficial Carrie sequel, which some really bombastic operatic uh, <laughs> filmmaking, uh, which we will get into on that on that episode. But anyone who do- oh, yeah. who hasn't seen the Fury and doesn't know how that movie ends, please watch the Fury and yes. see how that movie ends. You'll before enjoy you to that the episode. Yeah, you'll enjoy the ending um, at the very least. So. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, The Fury, and then we're also going to be talking about uh, John Huff again. We're going to be talking about his film The Incubus uh, from uh, 1982, which actually has John Cassavetes in the uh, leading role. And once again, it is John Cassavetes versus shape-shifting rape demon yes um that basically looks like a combination of of like if the castle freak was a bat (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. it 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 is a both of those movies are very strange and both of them are john cassavetes just absolutely slumming it in in paycheck roles um but uh surprisingly both are have some very intriguing stuff going on yeah um in in terms of the filmmaking uh there i think both of them are uh directors working above their material i think <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you know who's not slumming it john huff or brian DePaula. <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> that's right a hundred percent um, so that's what you can expect for your bonus episode next week. Again, patreon.com slash podcast. And then, uh, in two weeks time, we are going to be back with special guest, uh, Violet Luca, who used to be the host of the film comment podcast. And, uh, she is bringing with her, um, the other side of underneath and anguish. Awesome. Uh, wow. Both films that I have not seen. Yeah. Anguish. So, I've had on my Jamie, list for a while. So I'm excited. For yeah, that me too. I've been wanting. I Luga anguish yes yes wow man well a viola luca is so cool and i'm very excited to listen to that episode because i think she is incredible but oh man anguish i'm so excited for you guys to see that movie yeah i'm stoked (laughs) yeah that that one's been on my like uh been on my watch list for a long time and i just haven't got around to it because i knew we'd eventually do it on the show yeah i do that sometimes too where i'm like i'm gonna watch this movie but i know we're gonna do it in two months so i just wait (laughs) that was definitely one of them Definitely, definitely. So that's what you guys can expect in two weeks' time for your free episode. 
Uh, but that being said, I think that's going to wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much, guys, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.